on in Colossians very slowly, but we are continuing. Uh, we got through, I believe it was verse 3 last week, or yeah, last week. But we're going to start at verse 28 in chapter 1 and read through the end of 5. And that's how we're going to kind of refresh our memories of where we are uh, and put it all together as we continue on starting in verses in verse 4. That's what we're really focused on. But first, if someone would be willing to read chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 5. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Hannah. So if we go back and just to remember where we are, what is Paul and Timothy, what is their primary objective? What is their main goal in this section? Well, really, period in their ministry, but as described in this section. You go back to verse 28 to get the answer. Right. So it's, it's preaching the gospel, preaching Christ, in order that, what's the end result of this, if it's done? Maturity. Preaching the gospel so that people will reach maturity in the faith. Not some super Christian level, you know, not tier three through a progression, but that not immature, but they're mature. Those are the only two categories for saints, immaturity and maturity. And how hard is Paul working for this? Yeah, hard. He's toiling. He's struggling. He wants you to know the struggle uh, for all those he's ministering to, even those he haven't, he hasn't met face to face. He's still toiling for their maturity at Laodicea. Um, so even people he doesn't know who are just receiving his letters, he is toiling and struggling for them that they might know the gospel and they might become mature in Christ. So that's a big picture of what we're talking about. Now, talking about Christ, he it's not a side path, but as we moved on through those verses in chapter 2, how is Christ described? There's a few different answers here. So don't be afraid to get one wrong. The mystery, right? He's a mystery. So God's mystery, which is Christ at the end of verse 2. Good. What is Christ the source of in these verses? Wisdom. Yes. Christ is the source of all wisdom, all knowledge, all true understanding, uh, all wisdom. So all of these things, these treasures, are sourced in Christ. And that's fundamental to remember before we move on into verse 4 and 5 and following. There is only one source for these things. There is no other source. So that means if you go outside of this source, what are you sure not to find? 
Yeah, you're not going to find any true wisdom, any true knowledge, any true understanding. You won't find it because there's only one source. So if you don't go to him, you're without anything. Um, it's like trying to hook up a water spigot to like a gas pump or something. There's a, a water spigot is the only thing that will put water through a hose, right? You, there's just one source. All right. So with that reminder, and I'll reread verse 3 just to summarize. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay. Now let's dive into verses 4 and 5 and begin breaking those down. Why does Paul say that? Why does he want you to know that Christ is the source of all wisdom and all knowledge? Right. If Christ is the only source and he's trying to present you mature in Christ, then the only thing that's going to ruin that is if you go to other sources, is if you try to feed on other things than Christ and his word. So that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does it mean to delude? Somebody give me a definition of that word. Deceive, yeah, that's a good one. Any others? Deceive is probably the closest. Can be, yeah, lead astray is good to beguile. There's another word that we don't really use. Uh, kind of like delude. We don't use that very often. Uh, but the idea is trickery, leading you astray, taking you off the path, taking you away from what you need to be doing. And there's also a little bit of a malicious idea in that word. Somebody is trying to delude you, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing. And so there's some uh, some bad motives behind that word as well. So that no one may delude you, trick you, deceive you with what? Well, a plausible argument doesn't sound that bad. So why does it matter? Why does Paul not want you deluded with plausible arguments? What is plausible arguments referring to? Yeah, could make sense kind of thing. Yeah, uh-huh. What else? What could fall into this category? What might Paul be trying to outline here? This means from scientific testing, we know that water freezes at 32 degrees or, you know, whatever the exact decimal out is. And because of that, uh, we can't accept that truth because that was a plausible argument. Is that what Paul is saying? No. He didn't say empirical proof. He didn't say scientific testing. He said plausible argument. So what's the difference between that and actual facts that we can confirm in creation? Right. Right. One word kind of sums it up well, and that's philosophy. Now, not all philosophy is bad. Bad philosophy is bad. I'll rip off one of my professor's kind of common phrases there. But not all philosophy is bad, but bad philosophy is bad. So this is really what we're referring to. This word can also mean speculative, speculative arguments. And it's referring to what classical Greek uh, philosophers would talk about. 
they're talking about up here. They're talking about these other worlds, these big ideas, uh, you know, Plato's forms or uh, on the spot. I'm not going to try to come up with more and mess them up. But all these philosophical ideas that are out here that you can't really prove, you can't really disprove. But, you know, this might be an idea we could believe. This might be the real way to understand knowledge. But what Paul is saying is that this is not going to the source. If you're out here in speculative arguments that have no basis, you're not in knowledge. You're in, for lack of a better term, la-la land. You're out here in the middle of nowhere about things that don't matter and that you can't prove. And that's what a lot of Greek philosophy is. Now, I actually like reading through Greek philosophy and stuff. I think it's really interesting. But if you think that you're going to find true wisdom and knowledge there, then you're mistaken because there's only one source for those things. And so we're not talking about, well, that argument for how this scientific process works, I can't believe because it's a speculative argument. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about false views on life, uh, things that don't really profit. Um, does that make sense? Am I losing you all here? Or are you good? Everybody tracking? Okay. So that's what we're talking about with plausible arguments. So on the one hand, we have the true source. The source of all good, and on the other hand, you have these kind of false pictures, these false promises of knowledge and wisdom. And that's kind of the, the comparison that's being made, the contrast. All right, any other comments on verse 4? All right, verse 5. What is Paul doing here? Is he completely changing pace? He's talking about he doesn't want you to be deluded by these things. And now we're saying or he's saying he's absent, but he's with you in spirit rejoicing. What, how does that connect to what we just talked about in the previous verses? It's a good summary. Um, yeah, Paul's not with them, but that doesn't mean they don't know the truth. They've received the truth. The truth has been preached to them. They know what the word says. They know where the true source of knowledge is. And so we got that contrast. Christ is a source, not this. And I've taught you this, and I'm with you in spirit. Uh, and I love that line, rejoicing to see your good order. What a Presbyterian statement there, right? Good order uh, and the firmness of your faith. In Christ. So he's warning against these things, and yet he's also acknowledging something about the Colossians and the state of their faith. And what is that acknowledgement? Right. Exactly. So even though he hasn't met, he's heard enough reports about them, maybe at Laodicea, the ones he hasn't met. He knows enough about them that they are grounded in the, in the gospel, that they are progressing in that, that they are maturing in their faith. And some, many, hopefully most, are even mature already in their faith. And so he's not saying that, well, like you were saying, Dave, that y'all have given into this and you need to come out. 
Otherwise, I think we would see what we see in Galatians. Oh, who has bewitched you, O foolish Galatians? Uh, but here it's not that. Paul is rejoicing because they are firm in their faith. Uh, they are in good order. Uh, they understand the process of salvation, where they are in it, and what they have to cling to. So that's really a good summary there of what's going on. Any questions or comments on that? Right. Right. Because just because you're firm in your faith now doesn't mean you're immune to possibly being led astray or sliding yourself. Um, yeah, and that, that's a terrifying thing to think about it. But there's false teachers everywhere. And there's people who just have misunderstood and forgot the fundamentals. And so whether or not they're purely the false teacher and heretic or they're just they need to be called back to the basics. That's hard to decide. And uh, but it's a danger all the time. So we always have to be checking, are we firm and sound in the faith? Uh, that's a great uh, example tie into this. Or anything else? Any other comments before we keep going? Oh, wait, I had one more question for you. Verse 5, what does it mean that Paul says, I am with you in spirit? That's something we probably just read over, but what does that mean? Is Paul omnipresent? Does the spirit proceed from Paul? Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's most of it, that we are all connected to the body of Christ. Therefore, as you're praying for and remembering other saints, I mean, there's a sense in which you are with them in spirit. You're united by the same spirit. You're united to the same head Christ. And I think that covers it well. Um, but I think a lot of this is praying for them. He doesn't have to have met them to care for them, to struggle for them, and to want to see them mature. Uh, just by praying for them and delivering letters to them with the truth, he can encourage them and be with them in spirit in this sense. Uh, good. All right, any comments on that? All right, let's move on. Uh, we'll do 6 through 10. 
Uh, in my preparation, I was thinking maybe we could get into 11 and 12, but that topic's too big, and it was hurting my head. So we're going to save verses 11 and 12 and on for next week. So I have lots of time to prep my mind for that. But we can tackle 6 through 10, which is kind of semi-partway through a thought, because it does build into 11 and 12, but we're going to have to stop at 10 for today. So if someone, someone would be willing to read... Uh, Actually, let's just read 6 and 7 first, if someone could read that. Oh, yeah, yeah, you were good with 7. I'm sorry. Yeah, I corrected it, and I didn't even catch that you kept reading. I was like, oh, here we go, we're going. All right, thank you, Mike. All right, don't forget what has come before, what we've already talked about in the previous verses, because this is not an entirely new idea. Uh, What word is there that begins verse 6 that tells us that, that it is connected to what came before? Therefore, what is it Nick always says? You've got to know what it's there for, Uh, something like that. Uh, Yeah, so what's it there for? What was it we've just been talking about? Hard to sum it up, isn't it? (laughs) There were a few ideas in there. What's the biggest idea that was running through those verses, the biggest concern Paul and Timothy had of everything that he was saying? It all came back to one point, all the way back in 28, I believe, verse 28 of chapter 1, the end of it. Everything that Paul's saying, everything that he's warning you against, everything that he's working for, what is the point? Rooted, to present them mature in Christ so that they would be rooted in Christ. Yes, and so that's the same idea as what we're building on here. We haven't changed topics. We haven't changed subjects. It's the same end goal. This is what we're talking about still. So, six, therefore, as you will receive Christ. Yeah, not even are receiving. It's as you received, meaning past tense, completed. It has occurred already. Christ is already indwelling you, uh, and that cannot change. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So what are we really talking about here? I understand that's a difficult question and a vague one. I want to see if you can pick up on it. What are we transitioning to talk about here a little bit? Right, applying it. Um, Now, we're not truly to, like, if you split up the book and you talk about the command section that comes after the doctrine section, uh, we're not to that command section yet, but that's where we have to realize that the commands and the indicatives of who we are, who Christ is, they're so interwoven that they're going to overlap at points. And this is one of those points where even though we're not to that hortatory live this way, because of these great truths, there's still going to be a live this way here already. Does that make sense? So that's where drawing firm lines in terms of divisions can uh, trick us sometimes if we're not careful. So we have gotten big truth that Christ is the source of all wisdom and knowledge, that as long as we're anchored to him, we will be firm in our faith and maturing. 
Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord in this way, do what? Yeah. Continue walking in the truths that you know. You're not going to get to another tier of Christianity where things work differently. You're not going to reach a level of holiness where suddenly you're saved in a different way. Or the means of sanctification where they completely change. You are still a Christian. You are still based on the fundamental truths and uh, realities of the gospel. And as you leave that, then you're outside of the gospel. If you leave that, you've run away from this and you've gone into this. What you received, what you started in, repentance and faith alone, that's what you continue in, period. So as you receive that in Christ, walk in him continually. What do you all notice about the titling for Christ there in verse 6? Alive in Christ, yes. What about just, sorry, the title for Christ? Yeah. Do you always see it written out that fully? No, Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, often you just see Christ. Often you just see Jesus. More, uh, Just less common, you see Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. The order really doesn't matter there. What does Christ mean? Yeah, Messiah, the anointed one. So, okay, Jesus was his proper name. Christ is that he's the Messiah. He is the anointed one that was promised. He is the one from God. And then what about the Lord? How does that alter it? Because saying Christ is in a way already saying Lord, already saying the anointed one. So why say Lord as well? The God, yeah. The Lord, the God, good. Yeah, yeah. So in the Old Testament, when you see Lord all caps, what is it? Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so here we get Jesus, we get that he is the Messiah, and we get him declared as Yahweh, all in the same title. And so we get the full grand statement of who Jesus is. Now, why do you think Paul does that here? Right. And because there's no other source. Only the Lord, only Yahweh himself can be that source. And so if you leave Yahweh himself, where are you going to? If you reject the truth of God and the core of the gospel, what are you going to bank your hope on? What are you going to live according to that's going to give you truth or wisdom or knowledge or anything? There's nothing because you've left Yahweh. And that's the statement here. You received Yahweh, so walk in him. Uh, so just in, it becomes very emphatic when you stop and break down that title. If you just read quickly over, it's like, okay, walk in Jesus, good. But if you slow down and you look at that title, it's we are talking about walking in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, Yahweh. And it just becomes very profound very quickly when you slow down. All right, any other thoughts or comments about verse 6? Lee, are you waiting on a higher level of Christianity where you can shift to the next means of salvation? No. <laughs> Good. Carol, are you waiting on that? No. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. There is a, a warmth to that statement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, of course, other places, Paul does use uh, different wording. So other places it is running the race with perseverance, right? Uh, other places in scriptures, you, you do fall down on your knees. John, when he sees the vision in Revelation, is he excited and happy? Terrified, fell down as though dead. Daniel had the same events in the Old Testament. So, yeah, so there are different words there. Uh, but when it comes to your faith, it's a slow and steady walking in Christ. And I think that's a, that's a good one to pull out. Anything else? All right, well, verse 7, we're going to continue building on that same idea of walking in him. So there's three phrases describing what's going on, how we walk in him. What are those three phrases? So first one, rooted, then built up. And established. All right, so let's look at the big picture of the three, and then we can break. Well, no, I take that back. We'll go individually first, and then we'll look at the big picture of all three put together. So what does it mean to be rooted, you who are gardeners and farmers? Right. Yeah, anchored. Good. Good, good. What else? Yeah, not easily uprooted. And of course, in the ancient world, it was an agrarian culture. It was built around farming. So everybody knew farming. Everybody knew how plants worked, more or less, even if they weren't themselves farmers. Uh, It was the core of their survival is that people farmed and farmed well. Uh, Because they needed food to live. So having the idea of an example being rooted, well, that's going to strike home with just about everybody. Just about everybody's going to understand that. Now, it goes back to some of Jesus' parables and illustrations often revolved around agriculture, often revolved around plants. Uh, What is another example that would be similar to this? One of Jesus' statements. I'm the vine, you are the branches. So we're getting a a different form of it here. But again, an agricultural thing where Jesus says something about himself and therefore something about you as well. Uh, You are only going to grow as you're connected to the vine. A branch can't grow by itself, right? Okay, very uh, basic in that sense, although it's very deep at the same time. How is rooted different or the same? As the vine and the branches analogy, yeah. yeah. Statement, I should say, not analogy. So there, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Here, who's what? <laughs> right, which makes him what? The dirt, the soil, <laughs> what we're anchored into. Yeah, I know, that's where it gets confusing. And so I want you all to see that difference that in our minds, we, because of some other things we know from Scripture, we immediately want to go to, oh, he's the trunk, or he's the vine, and then we're the branches. Well, in this analogy, he's actually the dirt we're anchored to, the solid rock foundation that we've grown into and been anchored to. 
Uh, so just wanting you to see the difference in this illustration there. All right, next, built up in him. What are we talking about there? Yeah. Right, right. And if you follow this pattern and go back to the agricultural idea, and it's really the same growth you were just talking about, what is a plant, when you plant a seed, what's the first thing it does? It germinates in roots. It doesn't grow without a root, so the root has to grow. Then it starts to build up. And as it grows and as those roots reach deeper, as the plant's branches go higher and take in more sun, so the roots can keep going even deeper, becomes established and firmly planted in the soil. Uh, so you can push over a, a six-month oak tree. You know, it's tiny. But if you wait... 16 years, are you going to easily push that tree over? No, you're going to be on the ground, not the tree. Uh, so we see that progression here. So you're rooted, you're anchored into the soil, you're planted into the soil, and then you begin to be built up from the soil. So the same thing that you're rooted into that helps you stay put is also what gives you the growth to continue to grow up. Okay. And then the last uh, of the three here, established in the faith. So what begins with that root, that heart, hope of the gospel at the beginning when we first come to the faith, and as we grow and begin to mature, and then at some point, and I think we're following that immaturity to maturity pattern here, we become established in the faith. We become mature in the faith. I think, think that's the three steps we're supposed to see here, this growth, the establishment of the gospel in our hearts, the growth to maturity that we see. Uh, now let's look, continue looking at all three together here, the bigger picture of these three. What is the, I'm trying to think the right word to ask. Okay. Who is doing the action in these verbs? Is it active? Are you the active person here? No, these, these are passive verbs, meaning you are rooted. You are built up. You are established. You are not rooting yourself. You're not building yourself up, and you're not establishing yourself. You are being rooted, built up, and established. So what can that tell us about the gospel that Paul is proclaiming? What does that tell us about the maturing process that Paul has been discussing? Yeah. Right. And there is an active element. You're absolutely right. But all three of these are completely passive, meaning you have no role in these. I mean, in another sense, yes, you're absolutely right. We have an active role. But what we're talking about right here, in a strict sense, you don't have a role in. Who is the active force in all of this? Jesus. The gospel that he has given to us, the growth that he is producing in us, it all comes from Christ. Now, of course, we react to that and actively lay hold of it and seek to grow and pray and seek to be sanctified and ask God to make us holy. That's absolutely true. But at the outset, it is God working in us these things. It is God that produces the growth. We can't sanctify ourselves, though we are called to be active in it. Um, 
And so that's that, that God is 100% active while we are 100% active as well. Uh, that's that both and kind of thing. But in these verbs, we are really noticing that they are passive, meaning God is the one doing these things. If he has called you according to his gospel, if he has regenerated you by his strength, if he is maturing you by his strength, then he's doing all the work. Of course, you're active after. Um, we're not denying that fact. But God is the active agent in these actions. But they're not just passive. They're also, uh, they are also in the perfect. What is a perfect tense? Test your uh, grammar. <laughs> I know, I'm not sure I could answer my own question if I hadn't gone through seminary. Yeah. But just based on the word, perfect, what would you assume from that? Perfect. That's the perfect. It's something that happened in the past, but it's so perfect, it keeps, it keeps doing something. Think of it that way. Uh, so this, these works which began in the past, they are continuous. They don't have an end point. They keep going. Uh, so God begins, he roots us, he builds us up, and he establishes us, and those things don't stop. Our whole life, God is continuing these works in us, uh, which is a very encouraging thing, at least in my mind, uh, that God is always doing these things, that he is continually growing his church and his people. All right, any comments on that? I think that was the only grammar question I was going to ask you, so don't worry. <laughs> I just forget the perfect participle thing. Just know it's a continuous aspect. These are continuing verbs. It began in the past when you came to the faith. When God called you, he called you his. You uh, professed faith and started believing. From that point on, these things are active. God is working in you continuously. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, that's why we lay our crowns down at Jesus' feet, right? Because uh, it was him that enabled us to get those crowns. Uh, and this is where, if we want to look at the active part and connect it all together now in 6 and 7, what was our active command? It is a command in verse 6. What was our active command in all of this? Walk in him. You walk in Christ. He does all those things. Uh, so there is a condition, if you will. He calls you and establishes you. That's all him working in you to be able to act on your own to pursue God. But your job is just keep following Christ. That's your job. And as you do that, he is working in you and building you up. All right, everybody, everybody with me, everybody caught up. We all on the same page now, six and seven. Any other comments or thoughts there? Right. 
Well, it depends on what you mean by condition, I guess, and, and that's where we've got to parse out some words. But, of course, we have to repent and believe, first of all, but God is the one who enables that, right? If he hasn't worked in your heart, you're not going to repent and believe. Um, now, in terms of any good works or requirements in that sense, yes, it's a result of our uh, salvation. It's not a precursor to it. Uh, so would I word it the, in the exact same way? Probably not. But am I going to say that that's wrong? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, or it just depends maybe how she meant it or he meant it, whoever it was. Um, yeah. That's where it gets really complicated when we start talking about what we're doing versus what God is doing in salvation. And uh, the bottom line, God is doing everything, and then as a result, we can do some things too. And we can participate, if you will, in our salvation. Um, that's not an easy thing for our finite minds to, <laughs> to really grasp well. Yeah. All right, anything else? All right. Look at the end of seven. There's a couple more things to note here. Less complicated, though. So Paul says, just as you were taught. So nothing's changed since Paul left or since Paul wrote the last letter. Whoever shared the gospel with them taught them. Apparently, nothing has really changed. Imagine that. It's the same gospel that they still have to run back to. It's the same truth that they were originally taught. And that's what hitting on that point again, you don't become a Christian in one way and then down the road you stay a Christian a different way. It's always faith and repentance and walking with God. That is always your responsibility to cling to the truth as you walk by faith. That does not change. Uh, so even as they're mature, cling to what you were taught. You receive the gospel, walk in it. And what's the result of knowing that they were they are established in the truth that they were taught at the end of the verse. All right, no, excuse me, I worded that wrong. That's not Paul doing the... Who's doing the Thanksgiving at the end of seven? Yeah, the, the Colossians, or the, the believers at Laodicea as well, who are going to receive this letter too. So they are abounding in Thanksgiving because they have been established, or excuse me, rooted, built up, and established in the faith. So the result of their salvation and sanctification... And faith in Christ, clinging to these things, is that they are abounding in thanksgiving. And so, of course, the, uh, what's the application for us there? It's not complicated. Don't overthink it. Yes, if we are clinging to the gospel, we should be abounding in thanksgiving. Right. Now, I erased it already, but if we are clinging to the philosophy of the world, if we have given up the source, should we be abounding in thanksgiving? No. So that is very dependent on the fact that we're actually walking in him. If we're walking in him, we should be abounding in thanksgiving. And notice it doesn't say sometimes or when times are good. It's just assumed you will be abounding in thanksgiving if you're walking in the faith, even if times are tough. All right, let's read uh, 8 through 10. If someone could read that, please. Good, thank you. So we've talked about being rooted. And earlier, Paul went on that side statement in verse 4, don't be deceived, 
by these plausible or speculative arguments. Don't be deluded by them. But then he went back to, you are firm and established and rooted in the truth. And Paul's thankful for that. They should be thankful for that. They are thankful for that. But now we're returning to that note in verse 8, that warning. So here, what is the warning? Yeah. And so here he outright says, philosophy, uh, empty deceit. Um, And isn't it interesting the verb he uses there? Well, not really the verb, I guess. See to it that no one takes you what? Yeah, and you said captured, Carol, which was a good kind of rewording it for our understanding. What do you make of that usage of what that word? Yeah. Right, yeah, getting sucked into it. That's a good way to describe it. We hear something. Maybe we hear it for the hundredth time. Maybe we see it all around us in our culture. And more and more we start to think like that. Or more and more we start to not even realize it, but we're believing the same thing. Uh, the bad philosophy of the world around us just has a way of seeping into our thinking. And so instead of taking every thought captive to Christ, we start trading some of the gospel and adopting some of the world. And so then we get this syncretic mix of true gospel, but we're trying to attach other stuff to it. It really just makes this monster. It's no longer truly the gospel, and it's no longer just the world. It's just another false religion, actually, in the end is what it becomes, uh, if it's taken to its full length. But take you captive. Don't be captured by the world and its thinking. All right, philosophy and empty deceit. Are those the same? Are they different? How are they different if they are? All right, start with philosophy. What is philosophy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. A way of thinking. Right, right. So it's a way of thinking. So are certain ways of thinking, if we want to stick with that definition, always wrong? Right, we have to think in some way. <laughs> so that's that goes back to not all philosophy is bad. Bad philosophy is bad. Uh, and that's what we see here. Uh, so we have to think in a certain way. Uh, we have to have a worldview put together in our minds. That's not a bad thing. But what is the source of your philosophy? Is the source going back to Christ and his wisdom, the one who is has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Or are we combining that or rejecting it altogether and seeking after the world's version of philosophy? So don't let people trick you into believing it. Don't let people persuade you into thinking that something is more reasonable, quote-unquote, than what the gospel offers. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's why I think Paul pairs it with empty deceit. Uh, I don't think these are meant to be completely separate words. Now, they have slightly different meanings. There's a slight nuance here. But really, I think he's mostly saying two way, two things uh, to mean the same thing, more or less. I, I think he's doing it for emphasis. Uh, the type of philosophy he's talking about, if you will, is one that is empty and deceitful, meaning it has betrayed the true source of wisdom. 
I think that's what he's getting at here. Now we get some according to's immediately after that that help us kind of define this philosophy and empty deceit. So what are the according to's? Yeah, human tradition's the first one. All right. Christ as the source. What comes from Christ as the source in this context, this conversation? We're setting up a contrast here against what we just talked about in this verse. So what is Christ the source of in this passage? Yeah, we'll just put wisdom to summarize. Okay, so Christ is the source of all wisdom knowledge. He has hidden in him all the treasures of those things. All right, but here we're seeing something different. Philosophy and wisdom come from what? What was the first according to that Dave mentioned? Well, that too, that too. That's the second one listed. So we'll just list both. Human tradition is one source. And elemental spirits. Anyone can read elemental, you get a gold star. All right, so these are the sources here, right? So Christ leads to wisdom Human tradition and elemental spirits, though, they lead to philosophy and, we'll just put, oh, it's hard to write this single deceit. I think I put that right. We see two things being contrasted here, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of Christ. Now, what is human tradition? Don't overthink it. Yeah, we've always done it that way. Often in the church, it can be, well, we've always done it that way, therefore it must be biblical law. Not necessarily. Uh, But it's not just in the church, it's in the world too. Now, what was, okay, the audience Paul is writing to, there's kind of two different main groups of heresies that he might be addressing or warning the people against through this book. What might the first be? Jewish legalism, which is going to summarize very well, be summarized very well by human tradition. Yes, they started with the law, with the Torah, uh, with the prophets. But then what did the Pharisees do to the, to, the, um, to the Jewish people? They added to it. Well, the scripture says you can't do this. So let's add 10 more fences of things you can't do to protect that one thing. And while that may have started out with a good intention, it just became legalism, rules for the sake of rules. Or even adding so many rules to where if you follow the rules you've added, it looks like you're following Scripture, when really you're not. And so you could say, look how holy I am. I follow every law perfectly. Uh, because you've cooked the book, so to speak. You've edited it for your own uh, usefulness. So that kind of human tradition is one thing. But then on the other side, what was the other main cultural force that these Christians were living in? Right. Right. So like the Greek and Roman gods, by this point, not that many people actually legitimately believed those gods were real and had the powers they had. But it was tradition. And it was the cultural norm that you went and you offered things to these gods. You talked about these gods, even though you believe this philosophy over here that completely undid all the things your gods supposedly believe or tell you to do. So it was a cultural norm. It was a human tradition that most of the Greco-Roman world followed in some form or another. But 
even they didn't believe it, <laughs> but it was their human tradition. All right, so that can cover anything else, anything in between, but I think those are two big areas that this speaks to very clearly. All right, now what about elemental spirits? What are elemental spirits? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is Paul and Timothy's way of saying that all these other religions, all these other philosophical worldviews that reject Scripture, that go beyond or outside of Scripture, uh, they have demonic backing in some form or another. Uh, the devil rejoices in seeing bad views going forward in the world. And so all these things... Uh, there's evil forces and evil powers behind them. And that's why when we see all these uh, cults and, and uh, satanic groups and things like that in the world, there is some power behind them. We shouldn't just say it's just people acting silly. Now, we shouldn't ascribe too much power to it either because Christ is over those things and has subdued them. But there is some power behind them, some spiritual forces behind them. Uh, Paul tells us that there are real spiritual battles taking place in this world that we cannot see. Uh, behind the scenes, if you will. Uh, let me find, there's something, verse I wanted us to look at for this. Somewhere in here I had a verse. Oh, that's it. Uh, Galatians 4.3. I was looking right at it and thinking that wasn't the right one. So Galatians chapter 4 verse 3 says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then here's the contrast in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So what is elementary principles standing for there? And does that sound similar to this? I think it's just another way of saying you were bound to the world and the ways of the world. You were bound under sin and false views and false philosophy, and you were separated from the true source. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, so whatever sinful worldview you've got going in your mind that you favor, that's what it's going to be, uh, a rejection of the truth. And going to the world is your source, meaning it can be any variation of sinful desires and tendencies. Uh, and elemental spirits goes along with that. You see how closely they're connected. Uh, elemental spirits, elemental, oh, what was the word there? Uh, principles. I think he's really talking about the same thing, just sin in the world uh, as the source versus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah, that's that Greco-Roman, let's combine it. It'll be great. Uh, and on the flip side, it works for the Jewish problem, too. People are saying, well, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow dietary laws from the Old Testament. And there, too, it's you're combining. You're trying to add things to Christ that Christ has fulfilled and are done away with. So it ends up being the same problem. Uh, so very well goes in both directions against that. But then the nail in the coffin here for these false ideas, human tradition, elemental spirits, what does the end of verse 8 says? What is the core problem with them in the end? They're not according to Christ. They're not according to the true source, the source in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Meaning if it's not from here, what is it? It's false. It's a lie. It's empty. Uh, It's nothingness. It's a lie is what it is. All right, let's see what time it's in. Verses. Hmm. Well, let's at least look at 9 and 10 for a second. So I'll reread it. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So those things are not according to Christ, but speaking of Christ, what does Paul emphasize in verse 9? His deity, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. So in case you've misunderstood that title that Paul gave earlier about Jesus, that he is Jesus Christ, Yahweh, he tells you explicitly that he is full, filled with all the fullness of God's deity. There is no lack in Christ's nature. There is no lack in his godness, <laughs> uh, meaning Not only is he the source, but he's the almighty, infinite, perfect source of all these things. Right. And just how mind-boggling that is, I mean, to us is mind-boggling, but to them, it's like that the fullness of a good God can dwell in a human being. That's mind-blowing. Uh, for us, we can't understand that. Just the whole mystery of the incarnation. Um, but just hammering home the point that Christ is God and the source of all things. Therefore, he's the only source for life and wisdom. And then we get the great statement, though, in 10, building on that idea, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Christ has the fullness of deity dwelling in him bodily. And how does that relate to you as a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that... Perfect God um, trying to word this right has filled, has indwelt, has united himself to you. It's not something that's far off that you have to run to, that you have to search for. So much of philosophy in the Greek world was you have to go out and search for knowledge until you find it. 
Problem is, none of those philosophers ever found it. They kept looking and looking until they died. And it's a very depressing thing to read through Greek philosophy. I, I like it, but at the same time, it is depressing because you know that they may have had this right, they may have had this right, but they failed at the most important thing because they didn't have Christ. They didn't know the Lord. Um, so they died in unbelief. They died seeking after things that could never fulfill, satisfy, or answer their questions. Um, but meanwhile, if you are in Christ, if you are walking in him, then the fullness of Christ dwells in you. And that's a profound mystery. That idea of union with Christ, that the Lord Almighty could dwell in us by his spirit. That the same God who died and rose again and ascended into glory and sits at the Father's right hand could live in your heart. That's a mystery. To quote Paul, the mystery is Christ. Any other thoughts or questions, comments about that before we wrap up here? All right, is everybody's brain hurting a little bit? Mine is. All right, well, if, if no comments, then I'll close this in prayer. Last call. All right, forever hold your peace in. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are God Almighty, that the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily, that you came down to earth, the tabernacle, to dwell among us, and that you did that so that you might send out your spirit into our hearts, so that you might unite yourself to us, that we might be raised and seated in the heavenly places spiritually even now, somehow in a way we don't understand, and yet because you are seated in glory, in a sense we are as well. That is how close you have united us to you. And Lord, we rejoice in that. So help us to walk by faith. Help us to walk in the, the basics of the gospel. Not that we don't understand more complicated things, but that we don't ever move on from the core, from the heart of the gospel, which is faith in you. Lord, help us to persevere and work in us that which is pleasing to you. Pray it all in Jesus' name.